Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Legal Glass Ceilings. It gives me enormous pleasure today to introduce our first international guest to the podcast series, Charles Vega, a lawyer working in Florida and has had an interesting and varied route into the law and came to us to say, hey, it's not just young people who have challenges getting into the law. Some people have challenges getting into the law in their middle years as well. Uh, and that's a really important point. Charles, good afternoon and, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me as your guest. It's a pleasure. First of all, let's uh, let's set the scene. You work uh, in a law firm that you founded in Florida. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yes, I did. Right out of law school, actually. <laughs> and how long's the the firm been going? Since 2019. So we celebrated three years in May of this year, and we are close to having 100 active clients right now. It's a new firm with lots of enthusiasm, presumably. How many lawyers work in the firm? Is it just yourself? I have myself, I have four other attorneys and a fifth one starting uh, next month, who's actually a judge in another state and has dual licenses in New York and Florida. Because one of the things that intrigued me about learning about the American legal system is that each state has its own bar and its own Correct. legal framework. Mm-hmm. And you, yes. get, you have to take the bar exams, which I understand are pretty tough to get admitted <laughs> to the bar of each state. It's brutal. Some states are tougher than others. Florida is one of the toughest because they have too many lawyers is the attitude. So they're really limiting it. Uh, How many people actually end up passing the bar? It's roughly around 50% will pass the bar. Some states are a little more, I don't say easier, but less brutal because they don't have as many lawyers as Florida and New York and some of the other states. Before we talk about your route to the law, which I'm I'm very interested in describing, is it right that there are some issues that are dealt with on a state level and some issues that are dealt with on a federal level in the state? Absolutely. Absolutely. State law is different sometimes by state and federal law does not always align with state law. So in many cases, there's a lot of differences. A simple example would be you have to respond to a complaint in Florida for 20 days. In federal court, that's 21 days. So you have to know the differences and the nuances between, and that's a minor one. There's all kinds of different laws, federal versus state. Of course, we in in Europe have experience of this because until we took the regrettable wrong turn by leaving the European Union. As lawyers in the UK, we had a whole body of English law, uh, English and Welsh law to be technical, and then a whole body of European law, which operated alongside. And if there was a clash, EU law took precedence. Is it the same in the States? Federal law takes precedence over state law. Absolutely. Yeah. And in your law firm, tell me about the sort of cases. What areas of law have you chosen to practice in? Well, I started off with working with uh, personal injury and business cases in real estate, and then it kind of grew from there. So now we also do probate, family law, a lot of contract law, and I'm also a a mediator, a certified mediator and arbitrator as well. So we do some of that work as well. So we're, we're kind of broad spectrum, actually. So within a relatively small law firm, you do what we would classify as both contentious and non-contentious law. Yeah. 
So we're, we have 12 people now. So it's, we're not that small. We're not big. The way I like to look at it is we're a boutique firm that provides personalized service uh, because we're small enough. But we have enough people that, and with ex, the expertise, I'll say my attorneys, you know, some of them have 26 years experience. So they bring a lot to the table. So we're able to strategize cases together and, and work on some solutions. So I see it as the best of both worlds right now. Yeah, I can see that. Your journey to the law uh, <laughs> has not been, uh, if I can say, a traditional one where you grow up with parents in the law and grandparents in the law and surrounded by lawyers, understanding the language and the uh, formalities of the law. In fact, uh, you came from an entirely non-legal background, as indeed I did. Is that right? Correct. My, my father, we come from, I'm from a cop fireman family. Police officers and firemen is really our I'll, I'll say a lot of our, our family members. So I am actually the only attorney in my family currently right now. So I did not have the, uh, I'll say advantage of some of the people that have uh, attorneys in the family to guide them through or to say, you know, hey, here's what it is. But for me, I started law school much later in life, you know, so this is, you could say my second or third career, third career really moving to something different, but it was something that I always wanted to do. And when I was younger, I wanted to do it, but really didn't have a whole lot of guidance. And some of the people I talked to, I look back and I go, you know, it wasn't some good advice, but I really got into the corporate world instead. But I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a corporate attorney since I had worked for many large corporations before. Uh, And then it came to a point in life where I wanted to make a change. And I said to my wife, you know what? I want to go to law school. And she said, like, what? Well, yeah, I want to go to law school. <laughs> I've yeah, do it for a long time. But uh, if, I don't want to, if I don't do it now, it's never going to happen, right? So, so, so you know, she looked at the prospect of you giving up a well-paid job with a Fortune 500 company and a budding yeah. career and starting off with something completely new. How enthusiastic was she? At the beginning, she was not. So we actually, I ended up going to law school part-time at night. So I traveled four nights a week, 180 miles a day, round trip to go to law school. So my schedule for the, well, it was a four-year program I did in three and a half years. It was basically drive, go to school, work during the day, study during the weekends. And when I finished class, which was usually around eight o'clock or or nine o'clock, I'd go to the library till at least 10 o'clock, study and then drive home, get home at about 11, and then start the day all over again. And I did that for three and a half years. How old were you when, when you were doing this? 55. Did you have children still at home or had you gone through that, that phase? No, I went through that. They were out of the house and everything for a long time, but that's, that's a really impressive commitment to a change of work because presumably in your day job, you'd risen to have a fair amount of responsibility by this. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing about it was that uh, I wanted it so bad that people would say to me, how do you drive 180 miles a day, study and just keep up this routine? And my attitude always was, well, if you really want something, you're going to go after it. Now I look back and go, how the heck did I do that? You know, so. <laughs> so, so in your mind, what was so great about being an attorney? You know, it's kind of one of those things I'll say from when I was a kid, I had a couple of different careers I wanted to do. And one of them was an attorney. And, 
And I used to see different attorneys do things. And I thought, wow, that'd be pretty cool to do that. You know, I don't know if I can do, I don't even know anybody who's an attorney, you know, I ended up talking to one attorney who, who my cousin had worked for and he kind of inspired me a little bit, but then I didn't really do anything at the time because I was traveling a lot with the job that I had. Mm. So going to school and traveling just is not possible. So when that changed, the, the travel requirement changed for the jobs that I had that's when I really decided I was going to do something about it. That sounds to me as if you were after the role, not the benefits of the role. Is that right? Yeah, probably so. I mean, I was really after the role because one thing about being an attorney is there's so many things you can do. It's not limited. You're not, it's not a narrow focus. It's a broad stroke of the types of things that you can be interested in And many attorneys specialize in one area only for their whole careers because there's so many to choose from and there's so much to know out there. I focused on a couple of things, like I said, when I first started, but then as I started hiring attorneys who had expertise outside of that area and we already had people who were calling us asking for those types of services, I thought, why not just keep it in-house instead of farming it out? How did you keep going? as a man in his mid-50s? You know, law school, I've always said, I didn't realize how brutal it was until I got in. You know, I always thought it was, it's tough to get in and then you got to pass the bar to, you know, graduate and pass the bar to get out. But when I got in, the first year was extremely brutal. And I remember asking students who were in the second and third year and saying, does it get any easier? And they all said, nope, doesn't get any easier. So for me, I built an Excel program that illustrated the classes I needed to take. And I took it one step at a time. In other words, each semester I'd say, I've got to take these classes. This is how many credits I'm going to get. And I got to pass these classes and go to the next one. And I just kept saying, you got to keep moving forward. And there were numerous people in school that quit midway or, or got academically kicked out. And I certainly didn't want to be part of that. So, you know, you start spending a lot of money going to law school. It's like, I got to finish this. And I was lucky enough that in, in, at least in the law schools that, that I went to, I went to two of them, they had a, a curve. So the bottom 20% of the class automatically failed with an F. So you did not want to be that. I never got that. I never even got a D. So, but I passed all my classes and our school really had a maximum of three students per class can get an A. So everyone else was in between. So I was excited to get at least three A's while I was in school. To me, that was an accomplishment, being able to work and go to school at the same time, where a lot of people who were in law school really didn't have to work. The thing that kept me going was I I just saw the, the light at the end of the tunnel, and I kept saying one step at a time, get through this semester, get through the next semester. I even took classes during the summer. And I took classes, what they call intercession, which are classes between classes, meaning you go for a whole week or two weeks and you get two or three credits out of it. So I didn't stop because I was afraid that if I took a break, that momentum I was experiencing could slow down. And I didn't want to take that chance because people will do that. They'll take a break and they'll start relaxing. And, you know, you're reading 100 to 200 pages a week and you have to know it takes a lot of effort. And that was one of the things being out of school for so long, 
I always like to read the newspaper and the magazines, but you never test it on that. You know, you just kind of put it down and you might have a conversation with somebody. But to get back into that mode where you know you're going to be tested and you, you have so much information, I always called it a fire hose of information being thrown at you, that you just can't let up. You've got to just keep on studying. And, you know, for me, I'm not the person that who in my undergraduate was an A student that memorized everything. I was your average student. Not that, that I was the smartest or the worst person in the class, but bottom line was is it requires a lot of effort and a lot of dedication. And like I said, I built that Excel program just so I knew how far I needed to go and what was next. And I could see where I was getting to the next level, getting to the next level, one step at a time. The brutality of that process, as you rightly describe it, must prepare you so much for practice where, I assume practice is similar in, in the States too, in the UK, where, you know, I get, I get a set of papers or I've been sitting as a judge today and they say, here's a 400-page bundle. You've got half an hour to get to the guts of it. <laughs> And then they, they bring the case on. And it's, it's that process that we learned in law school, working out in, in practice. So if you can't do the law school, you can't do the practice. I, I think you're spot on. And, and what I found was that everything that I learned in law school, well, just about everything, I'll say I could use, you know, in the practice where if you were doing an undergraduate degree or whatever, you didn't really use a lot of things that you went to class for. But law school, I found that it made me know enough to be dangerous, meaning, and if I needed to do more research, I knew where to look and how to put it together. Yeah, I, I'm inter interested by your idea of knowing how much to be dangerous, knowing how dangerous to be, because when we know a little of the law, we can be a danger to ourselves and to our clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, no, what I, what I mean by that is if, if you have a situation where someone's bringing it to you, you know what the law is, but then as a prudent attorney, you've got to do your legal research to verify that that law is still valid and whether, what happened in cases that are similar to that. So you know where to look and you kind of know what to do. And that's what I mean by you know enough to be dangerous, that you can pull that information together versus not having a clue on what to do. So we, we, we get pointers from law school as to where to look next. Right, exactly. Rather than getting the answers. How did you get on with your fellow students who presumably were 30 years younger than you? I, I, I say great, actually. Um, I never had any issues. I had a lot of support um, from other students. Uh, we worked well together, studied together. I did find, it's kind of funny, though, you know, when you see people in law school, I'd say, huh, I'm not the oldest one. Or that person is around my age, too. So there are a couple of people, not a large majority, but there are a couple of people that were in my age group. And uh, I would be excited to, to meet with them or talk with them about, about things. And, uh, but most of them were probably in their late 20s or, or 30s, I'll say, for the most part. But there was a few of us. And again, there was a few that were even older than me. So it was like, all right. <laughs> so there were other members of the Late Starters Club. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> now, in the UK, when you graduate as a, a barrister, we have a split profession, we have barristers and solicitors, I'm a barrister, many of my friends are right. solicitors, but you can't, you're not allowed 
by the regulatory framework to start your own law firm or practice independently as a barrister until you've done either three or five years practice under the wing of somebody who is more experienced. So working in a law firm, working in the chambers. Is it the same in Florida? No, it's not. And and here's what I would suggest for people to do that uh, don't have that. First thing is for me, I've worked in major corporations, so I have some really good business acumen. I know how to talk to people. I know how to research things. I know how to get things done. I know how to manage people. But you it is really important to have a few mentors. And that was one of the first things that I did was I developed relationships with several attorneys who've had 30 years or more experience and used them as mentors and even uh, invited them to be co-counsel on some cases that were more complex. So for some, some, I'll say simple cases, I did them myself with the support of those mentors But any complex case, uh, I thought it was better for the client to have more expertise. I would bring that person in as co-counsel. And not only are we helping the client, but I'm also learning from them. And presumably, as you took your steps, having passed the bar, you have a considerable advantage over other new lawyers in that you've got business skills, and you know how to run a business from your time before your, your legal career. Right. Because I'm, I'm conscious that what we learn in law school, certainly in the UK, is very much in the technical black letter, how to argue cases, how to analyze the law, how to understand what people's legal rights are, and less about how to run a business, how to make sure you pay your taxes, how to negotiate your real estate leases, how to be a proper HR manager, how to do marketing, how to do business development. Whereas presumably you came to running a law firm with all those experiences from your earlier careers. Yes. And and law schools, and at least I'll speak for the law schools I went to, they don't teach that either. So you get that expertise outside. They try to teach you how to talk to clients. A lot of times, um, the expression we use was when you speak to a client, they throw so much information at you. It's kind of like we say they throw up at you and you got to learn to pick what's relevant and what's not relevant. So I think my professional experience prior to being an attorney allowed me to be really good at that or excellent at that. And I know they try to teach that in law school, but it's not really a main focus. Well, it's interesting because my daughter's recently been through medical school And there's a big focus in medical school now on learning to listen to patients, learning Mm -hmm. to interact properly with patients, not dominating the conversation with your expertise, understanding the power vacuum. Right. It's now coming into law school as well, but I think it's absolutely vital because after all, a lawyer who knows the black letter law but can't talk to a client is as useful as a chocolate teapot most of the time. I, I agree with you 100%. I, I kind of look, when I look back and listen to what you're saying, I wish the law schools would have had speakers for somebody like me who's opened a business and what to, what to look for and things that uh, pitfalls you're going to run into to help articulate a, a business in a way that's going to be successful. Because I, I always use this analogy. So I'm also a martial artist. 
you can be a great martial artist, but you can be a lousy business person in running a martial arts school. The same thing is with an attorney. You can be a great attorney, but do you know how to run a business? It's two separate things, two separate skill sets. And that means that if we have people listening to this podcast who have ambitions to be lawyers, they should never underestimate the importance of the commercial and people skills they've got when they're pitching themselves to a law firm. Don't think it's just about being able to decipher the precise meaning of a complex legal text. I'm with you 100%. And I would add to that and say not only to the firm that you're applying to, but when you are an active attorney in any firm, those skill sets really dominate what's going to happen. Because when you're talking to a new client, even a prospective client, they're evaluating you and they want to know that you're going to listen to what they have to say. You have the integrity to get it done and you have the expertise to be able to pursue whatever case that they're trying to resolve. So being able to talk to clients is vitally important, how you speak with them. And also remembering that, you know, for good or bad, God gave us some Two ears and one mouth, and that's the right proportion. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Where do you see your career going now? You've built this successful firm. It's growing. It's niche. You've got attorneys working for you. Where do you see yourself in five years? I don't see myself getting much bigger because I don't want to be much bigger than we are right now. What I see is us being more efficient internally and really doing what we're doing now in some ways better. Hopefully in five years will be some ways better. I don't know what that is right now because I don't, you know, at the beginning when I first started, I wasn't imagining having a team of 12 people, particularly in three years. So I really think right now I want to just make the company a little more efficient in some of the things that we do. We are very customer focused and that's why I think people refer us, but there's always room for improvement. But I don't see myself saying, hey, in five years, I'm going to have 50 attorneys and we're going to do X amount of dollars. I didn't do this for the money. I did it because it was something I wanted to achieve. And I use the term, I don't know if you use it in the UK, but in the US, we say we pinch ourselves once in a while that, hey, this is real world. I actually got what I wanted to do. I got through law school. I passed the bar the first time. I've opened my own practice. I'm an attorney. I have several attorneys with us. We're proud of what we've accomplished. I've got a great team. We have really high integrity, a lot of expertise. And I really feel that uh, we're doing what I wanted to come out and do. In five years, if we're the same size now, uh, with the same number of clients, I would be happy. Can I pick up the high integrity part? Because one of the things that struck me in my career and particularly talking to successful lawyers on these podcasts. And we've had a series of fascinating lawyers, and you come immediately after the president of the Supreme Court in in the UK. So (laughs) don't get higher than that. Um, (laughs) But is the concept that rock-solid integrity is an essential feature of a successful lawyer? And, And by successful, I don't necessarily mean financially successful, but a technically successful lawyer. I wonder whether you whether that's a feature that you recognize from the states. Well, integrity is probably the number one on my list. I don't know that it affects your your legal knowledge, 
but it does affect how you interact with clients and how clients come to your doorstep, basically. Clients need to be able to trust their attorneys. And in the U.S., sometimes attorneys don't have the best you know, reputations. And in general, you know, sometimes people will think attorneys are not as integrity as they should be. But the reality that I found when, once I became an attorney and met with other attorneys was they were very, very helpful. I found just about every one of them to be feel of high integrity. I was very pleasantly surprised of that. Because when you're not in the industry, you you know you don't talk to attorneys. But now that I do, I have a much more higher respect for uh, U.S. attorneys. I'll just say attorneys in general that the, their ethics are high. Having a practice, though, you run into people that you feel on the other side might be running up their bill. We don't do that. That's that's part of the integrity part, but that's rare. I don't. I wouldn't say that that's a big issue. Like I said. Coming from the general public to being an attorney, I was very impressed with the integrity of the people that I've met. That, that I thought they might feel that I'm being competitive, having a firm in, in their backyard. And I didn't find that. I found them to be very receptive. And a lot of our clients come from other attorneys because of the relationship I've built with them. And I think integrity is on top of that list. Even though I don't have 30 years experience, I have major firms sending me clients because they know that I'm going to treat this client right. Integrity goes beyond that because as lawyers, we represent our clients and our clients' understanding and belief and instructions as to what happened in a particular set of circumstances. And there's quite often a clash. Mm -hmm. Um, And we as lawyers, we're paid advocates for our clients and our clients version of events inevitably there will be occasions when the judges or the juries don't accept our clients version of events and in the UK we have to we recognize this and have to tread a very tight line between never misleading the court by saying something we know to be false but advocating for our client for a set of facts which is under challenge and might be considered by the court in the final analysis not to be true. Does that fine line? It is a fine line. I don't think it's any different in the US or in Florida, I'll say. I mean, that's my opinion. But I think that when people look at attorneys in the courtroom, within the first few minutes, they're analyzing you and saying, Is that person somebody that I believe, you know, and it's important that you portray that. They don't know you. They've probably never seen you before. But we certainly in my cases, I put my clients through the third degree because I don't want to be left in the position where my client gets found out in the witness box and the case falls apart. Oh, absolutely. So sometimes clients don't want to be 100 percent up front with you. Uh, I had an example of that just the other day where my private investigator was following up on a call with uh, a client of ours. And um, yeah, we're finding things out that uh, he was reluctant to release. And it's our job to find those things out far before we ever go step into the courtroom. You don't want to be surprised because something like that could uh, ruin your case. And is integrity 
or to what extent do you see integrity as being checking, testing, sometimes destruction testing, your own client's case before you come anywhere near a courtroom to make sure that we're giving the best advice to our clients, which is if they if they're not, if they if they're going to be found to be lying, they must they must first hear it from us, not from somebody else. Absolutely. So what I the way I position that is I would say to my client, this is what the other attorney is going to ask you. And I might role play with them and ask them those tough questions and kind of beat them up a little bit so they know what to expect. But the other thing on that is, too, is, you know, that witnesses are some people are just not good witnesses. You know, I've had situations where I prep them and then they go up and say something really stupid. That was not part of <laughs> what we talked about, you know. For example, one person said, I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyway. I'm like, hello. This isn't going to help you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I prepped that person the day before. So yeah, we know. You, know, you have to you have to look at those witnesses and say, is this person going to be a good witness? Should I even have them on the stand? Yeah. We're, we're not allowed in the UK, very strict rules against coaching witnesses. We can ask them difficult questions, but we can't tell them what the answers are. Oh, yes, yeah, the same here. Yeah, you, don't, you can't tell them what the answers are, but you, you can ask them the questions you anticipate to be asked by the opposing side. Yeah, yeah. You're unlikely to be asked this. You, you might want to think about what your answer is going to be. <laughs> exactly, right, yeah. You can't tell them what to say. No, that's no, no. Not, no. That's not <laughs> um, Charles, there are... More lawyers in Florida, you were saying, than there is really capacity for the lawyers to work. But there are still people who want to become lawyers. Mm -hmm. Is it a good profession for the future for somebody who aspires to be an advocate? Oh, absolutely. I, I think being an attorney is an excellent career. I just, the only thing I would say is that talk to a couple of attorneys before you, you even make that step to start taking the law school admissions test or anything else to make sure it's something that you want. What people perceive sometimes is not actually what it's about. I mean, one of the things that we were just having a discussion amongst the legal team was, you know, we have to balance our personal life with our business life because attorneys are always arguing about something. There's a lot of stress involved in being an attorney because you always have an opposing side that's arguing a point or arguing a position and and you're trying to do the best for your client. And you have to be able to separate that and enjoy some personal time to de-stress yourself because it can be a very stressful job. I think people that are going into the profession need to understand that. This is a, a job where you are arguing with somebody all the time about a different position. It can be very stressful. Yeah, a good friend of mine said, you've always got to remember it's Ultimately, it's somebody else's problem. Yeah. We are paid to assist in somebody else's problem, but like the doctor, we're not the one suffering the disease. And if we don't attain that professional detachment, we're actually useless in helping them. Yeah. It, it, and it's tough to do that when you have compassion and empathy for people and you affect their lives, just like doctors do. You affect their lives, so you want to make sure you get it right. So no one should come into this profession if they can't psychologically deal with the fact that we are often helping people or working for people 
at a time which is incredibly stressful for them. Mm-hmm. And we're quite often where this is the only time in, in their life they're going to deal in a, in a heavy way with a lawyer. Right. Most people have never even talked to a lawyer. Uh, so many calls I get, I, I never had a, somebody sue me before or had, never had to sue anybody before. You know, I don't even know what to do. And, and they're stressed out about it themselves, too. You know, you've got to be able to help them understand the process and give them a sense of comfort and be honest with them on whether they have a strong case or not. You know, yeah. you know, I always tell people at the beginning, we have to evaluate a case before I can tell you whether it's a good case or not. Because people right away in a consultation, well, do I have a case or not? Well, I can only go by what you're telling me. We have to do our due diligence. So, And sometimes they don't like the answer. Well, they're better off finding out early than later. What do you think was the most important one piece of advice that you received that you'd pass on to lawyers who are thinking of entering the profession? Well, at the beginning, I didn't have a lot of people that were directing me until I got into law school. I got a lot of uh, insight from the professors. Um, So what I will say is when I got out, though, I did seek out a lot of other attorneys. And like I said earlier, a lot of them became mentors and they were happy to help. Um, so I would say, don't be afraid to, to reach out. In Florida, they have a mentorship program where you can actually go online and request a, an attorney as a mentor too. So they help bridge that gap to help attorneys that are particularly new that need some assistance in a particular area of law. And I use that. And as a result of that and my efforts to reach out locally, I did develop several relationships. But uh, even before you go to law school, my advice would be to reach out to attorneys, a couple of them, and just say, what do you like about this job? And what do you think about me getting into it, looking at my background? Yeah, I I completely agree. I act as a mentor for um, three or four lawyers, uh, mostly in the middle years of their career rather than the beginning, because I'm so mm-hmm. so old. And, you know, ha- having been called to the bar in 1832, um, I'm not much used to people who are brand new qualified, but I am used to people in the middle of their years. And it's mostly listening, but it's, mm-hmm. sometimes it's a little bit of don't take yourself too seriously, a little bit of, you know, remember you've got a family, prioritize time for them. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if you get time away from the law, you'll end up being a better lawyer. Don't, don't think it's a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week job. It's, uh, that burns people out. And it will. And if you let it, it will yeah. burn you out. And finally, I, I'd like to ask you this. In the UK, one of the things that we've learned doing these podcasts is that people coming in for the profession who are not in areas where in families or social circles where they know lawyers, often perceive barriers that they don't understand the language of the law. They don't understand the etiquette of the law. They don't understand all those things that are not written down about the way that lawyers function. And learning those can be quite terrifying. Making mistakes can be terrifying. Is it the same in the States? I would agree with you 100%. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you learn if you don't grow up in an environment where this is kind of imbued in you from an early stage? This is how you are. 
you manage your cutlery when you go to a posh dinner. This is how you address a judge if you meet them socially. All these are things that terrify young lawyers. So my advice is when you get out of law school and you pass your, your bar um, is to immerse yourself in the industry. And the way you can do that is a couple of ways. First, join the local associations. Like in, in here we have, it's called Volusia County. So we have a bar association that's local. Join your, floor, your, your state or Providence, whatever associations. Join, um, like I'm also a member of the Trial Lawyers Association and I'm on the board. So you meet different people. And as you start meeting people and they start developing a respect for you, then they become a resource for you to ask questions and to develop a network of attorneys that can support your new firm or your new practice or being new in the industry because the things that they're going to tell you are not what you learned in law school. So develop your networks, learn from your peers, do lots of listening and take baby steps, but don't be afraid of making some mistakes. Always seek advice. Absolutely. Right. Joining these different associations. Uh, matter of fact, I did a lot of pro bono work. Uh, matter of fact, last year I was the pro bono attorney of the year. So Doing that also helped me meet other attorneys. Uh, most of them were in the business for 30 years and they were trying to give back to the community. So that was another way of not only learning, but I always felt lucky that I was able to get through what I did through law school and passing the bar that I wanted to give back as well. But it was a very rewarding experience in numerous ways. So I would encourage any attorney that comes out of law school to do some pro bono work through a local organization. It'll be, it's a great learning experience. Charles, that's a great place to finish. Thank you so much <laughs> for your time, for your wisdom. Thank you. Lots of really, really good advice there. It's interesting how much of it is, crosses the Atlantic and is referable in, in the UK. And I'm sure that means that the previous podcasts that we have recorded will have nuggets in there that may be useful for US aspiring lawyers as well. But thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. I'm very grateful for your time and it's been a pleasure talking to you. A pleasure talking to you, David. Thank you much for having me as your guest.